She didn't have a name, at least not one worth mentioning, but she did have the answer. She was young when the invading army had destroyed her village and taken her as its captive, but not so young that she couldn't remember her people and the stories of their God and their prophets. She knew that her mistress's husband was a powerful man, a mighty warrior, and yet a man who carried in his body a terrible weakness. A man who, when he gave an order, an entire nation's army did whatever he asked. A man who, when his name was spoken, it brought fear to the hearts of rival kings, and yet that same man was powerless over his leprosy. The ironic blemish on an otherwise impenetrable image, the skin condition was something that the general could not defeat. But the nameless slave girl knew better. We aren't told why she decided to say something to her mistress, but when she did, she did so at great risk. Her offer that there was a prophet in Samaria who could cure the general of his leprosy was a bold, if not brazen, statement, one no slave girl had any business making, and so one we know must have come from genuine faith. Who did think she think she was, this captive Israelite, to proclaim that her native people had access to a curative power that their Syrian counterparts did not have? And yet, her promise was so reckless that it began to wear down the doubt in her mistress's heart until she believed that it just might be possible. The general's wife also didn't have a name, at least not one that is mentioned to us, but she knew how to get a man whose life depended upon the unwavering image of power to attend to his hidden weakness. She knew how much the promise of healing would mean to her husband, and yet she also knew how unlikely it was that he would ever go to Israel, to the land of their sworn enemies, in search of it. So she waited until just the right moment the moment when she knew her husband would be receptive and she dare not oversell it lest she put him off. Instead, she deftly hinted at what her slave girl had said, planting the tiniest seed in the mind of the general so that as the days unfolded, that seed might grow into a hope that despite all the odds, the general might be cured of his disease. And her hint worked. Unable to get the fantasy of healing out of his mind, the general went to his own master and begged permission to leave the country in search of a cure. The king of Aram also doesn't have a name, at least not one that the prophet mentions to us in this passage, 
but he had a lot of money. And he was willing to give a considerable amount of that money to his favorite general if it would buy him the cure that he sought. The king of Aram was a man of unrivaled power. He dealt in power, and so he did what he knew how to do. He wrote a letter to the king of Israel, knowing that power like this would surely be found in the courts of the powerful. But when the king of Israel whose name is not mentioned in the passage, received the letter, he tore his clothes and cried out in fear, Am I God to give death and life to heal this man of his leprosy? The king of Aram must be picking a quarrel with me, he exclaimed, unable to see beyond his own impotence. For generations, the prophets had proclaimed to the people of God that God's power had deserted the palace of Israel's faithless kings. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the Israelite king did not know what to do. But the prophet did. And when the prophet heard that the king had torn his clothes, he sent word to the king, Send the man to me so that he might know that there is a prophet in Israel. He didn't say it. He didn't have to say it, but the message made it clear that the king needed to learn that lesson as well. Imagine what a show it must have been when the general and his horses and chariots and gold and silver and festal garments paraded down from the palace through the streets, through the neighborhoods, down to the prophet's house. Surely the prophet must have heard the noise of the company as they approached his house, and yet he didn't even bother to get up to go see who had come. Instead, he sends a message by way of a nameless messenger, a message that tells the general to go and dip in the river Jordan seven times so that he might be made clean. And when he heard the message, the general was filled with rage. Never had he been treated so dismissively. Does he know who I am, the general proclaimed? Does he know the power that I have, the power to flatten this little domicile as if it were made of straw? He cried out against the arrogant prophet. I thought surely that for me he would come out and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the spot, but all he did was send me a folk remedy, a remedy I could have gotten back in Damascus. Why did I bother coming all this way? I could have dipped myself in the waters back at home. And when the angry man stormed off, a few of his servants none of whom deserves to be mentioned by name, but all of whom were brave and skilled, used their skill to speak to their angry master and say, wouldn't you have done something difficult if the prophet had asked you how much more since all he said was wash and be clean? We live in a world in which people hunger and thirst for power. The currency of our lives is strength and wealth and control. Weakness and vulnerability are anathema, yet our God 
He's the God of the poor and the oppressed. In every generation, our God takes the side of the weak and the vulnerable and the disenfranchised. Our God brings salvation not to the invincible, but to the defenseless. God comes and works in the lives, not of those who are self-reliant, but those who are utterly dependent. In the story of Naaman, the Assyrian general, we read how the nameless ones show us where God will work. The nameless slave girl, the nameless wife the nameless messenger, and the nameless servants, they are the ones who show the mighty general where God is at work. And the nameless kings of Aram and Israel, they remind us that those who grasp at power don't even understand what power is. We learn an important lesson from their ironic powerlessness. And in the end, Naaman, the mighty general, only gets what he's after when he humbles himself and admits his need and accepts the prophet's menial instruction. In a world that is infatuated with its own power, we must become empty and broken vessels for God's salvation. The threat of war is real. Hostilities mount all around us. Our nation's military might is on display. But our God's reign of peace always comes through those who are empty and vulnerable and powerless. And if the world will find the way of God again, it is up to you and to me to become those empty, vulnerable, and powerless vessels for God's work. If the power-drunk world will discover again the way of God, we must become nameless prophets. We must set aside the identity we have earned for ourselves or that has been given to us by our ancestors in order that we might point the powers of this world back to God. We must be stripped of our own power. We must let our vulnerability stand in stark contrast to the principalities of this world, or else they will never hear God's voice. We must become the nameless messengers of God's hope. We must become those empty vessels through which the powers of this world begin to see how God works, what true power is, then in us, they will find the mighty works of God's salvation, a salvation that only comes in peace. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.